This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, good evening. My name is Father Alan Fitzgerald. I'm the director of the Augustinian Institute. And I have the pleasure of semester after semester of welcoming to Villanova's campus a fellow of St. Augustine. Um, in the spring semester, the fellowship is called the Patricia H. and Basie St. Augustine Fellowship. Patricia and Basie, a member of the Board of Trustees, offered a sizable contribution so that we could bring a scholar to campus each spring. And this spring we have the fortune, good fortune, of having Kimberly Baker, a um, member of the theology faculty at the Seminary of St. Meinrad in St. Meinrad, Indiana, only since a year. Um, so she got there for a year and she left them high and dry for a semester because it was so inviting to come to Villanova. Um, and even though that wasn't your motivation, um, it has certainly been a pleasure to have you here in, in our midst. Kimberly's background took her from um, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for her Master's in Divinity to Notre Dame for her PhD, at least for her academic background. Much of the rest of her education, or at least a part of her other education, took place in Ivory Coast, Haiti, and India. And I will suggest that both pieces of education, that is the, the academic and the practical, flow together in the talk she's going to give us tonight. Um, a year ago, from the Catholic Society, Theological Society of America, she had received an award for the best essay by a young scholar, an essay called Augustine's Doctrine of the Totus Christus, reflecting on the church as a sacrament of unity. Tonight, she's going to talk us about Augustine on the value of present life. And somehow or another, what I have come to know about you since you have arrived is this need to pull together an intense interest in Augustine as a preacher and the experience of the everyday, perhaps mirroring in some way your own past educational adventures. So tonight, Augustine on the value of the present life, let me not delay, but present to you Kimberly Baker. Thank you. It really is good to be here with you this evening, and it's great to be here for this entire semester here at Villanova. Um, as Father Allen mentions, mentioned, I had started my job at St. Meinrad. I actually only taught a semester before they let me have leave to come here, and so it was a pretty quick turnaround, and I'm certainly grateful to them for trusting me as a new faculty member saying, you know, I have this opportunity. Do you think I could take it? And that they were willing to say, hey, you're brand new, but go for it. We think it would be good for you and good for us. And so I think it speaks very well of that community to be sending me out so quickly. Um, I will comment, before I was at St. Minard, I actually was in Pennsylvania. So I have a, a Pennsylvania connection. I was in Western Pennsylvania at St. Vincent College in Latrobe. And I taught there for four years before moving to Minard. And so lived on the Western side of Pennsylvania. I'm now on the Eastern side, sort of getting a fuller feel for life in Pennsylvania, and I'm very grateful. 
Um, before I begin my presentation, I do want to offer my thanks to Patricia and Basie for funding this fellowship. It's a great opportunity, especially for a junior scholar. And so I'm very grateful to her for making it possible. Grateful to the Augustinian Institute for selecting me, for hosting me, um, helping me along the way. And then certainly grateful to the Office of Mission and Ministry and Villanova University as a whole. I have enjoyed the first half of the semester here, getting to know the community, um, going to women's basketball games, going to a play, hearing lots of lectures, just enjoying life in general. And so I highly recommend sometime in your life spending time in a university when you're neither a student nor a faculty member, just there doing your thing and being able to really enjoy all of those other pieces of university life when you're not rushing around trying to write papers and grade papers and all that. Of course, I'm writing a rather large paper, but with a different kind of deadline at different kind of intensity. Well, I do want to speak a bit about Augustine on the value of present life. And I think Father Allen is correct in, in thinking that somehow this reflects something of my own life, my own questions, my own experiences, my own struggles. Um, I, I'll give a, a brief mini background before, before turning to Augustine. In many ways, the reason I began to study theology in the first place was because of my experience of crossing cultures, going to the Ivory Coast in West Africa. And it was there that I realized I don't know anything about theology and I'm out here trying to do ministry. I think I need a little bit of training and so those practical questions have been driving my study of theology from the very, very beginning because that's the only reason I ever took a theology class. I thought I had it all together because I had been in Baptist Sunday School, 13 years perfect attendance. I've got it down. Read the Bible through several times. What would I need formal study with? Maybe some of you had felt that way somewhere along the way before you were required to take a theology class. But I think those practical questions have shaped much of what I do with my study, and it's probably part of the reason I gravitate toward preaching. Preaching deals with scripture, which I have a strong foundation in that, but also very much with connecting theology, um, the life of faith, with the everyday. And so preaching to me seems like a very good place to be studying to get some sense of the present life. So I'll share a bit with you about Augustine and what I see him saying about the value of present life. When explaining the sacrament of the Eucharist to newly baptized Christians, Augustine of Hippo once preached, and this is a direct quote, the reason these things, brothers and sisters, are called sacraments, he's speaking about the Eucharist, so the bread and wine, the reason these things are called sacraments is that in them one thing is seen, another is to be understood. What can be seen has a bodily appearance. What is to be understood provides spiritual fruit. And that's the end of the quote. These words resonate with what becomes the core of the definition of sacrament today. So baseline definition, a visible sign of God's invisible presence. While in contemporary life, the term sacrament has come to be used for specific rituals such as baptism and the Eucharist, Augustine used the term sacramentum much more freely. Um, he would sometimes use it interchangeably as well with the language of mysterium. And so this sense of sacrament and mystery somehow interlocking. There were many things that Augustine would call sacraments. Baptism in the Eucharist, certainly. But also prayers or certain responses used in the liturgy. So the Our Father or the call to lift up your hearts would all be a sacrament for Augustine. He would refer to the Sabbath as a sacrament. Old Testament circumcision. Easter, the sign of the cross. So many things, many rituals could be called sacramentum, or together sacramenta, in which one thing is seen and another is understood. Well, 
Father Allen has already told you, my concern is present life. And I thought, well, what about the here and now? If so many different things and rituals and prayers could be called sacrament, could the present life in Augustine's mind be called sacrament, or at least sacramental? Could the present life itself be a bearer of God's presence? Well, I thought Augustine would make it easy for me since he used sacrament in so many different places. Maybe I could find him using the word sacrament for daily life and then I'm covered. I just have to tell you that that's what he said. I couldn't find a place. Of course, there's lots of Augustine. Maybe I just haven't found it yet. But I've not found a text where Augustine explicitly calls life in the world sacramental. But I would suggest his preaching does point to something more to life than can, perceived with, can be perceived with the senses. His preaching stirs up an awareness of an unseen reality coursing through the present life, specifically the presence of Christ in the world that endures after Christ's historical life on earth has come to a close. This enduring presence, I would argue, offers great affirmation of the value of present life in the material realm and opens the present to sacramental possibilities of encounter with Christ in the daily life of the church as it engages in activities of service and prayer. Such encounters bridge heaven and earth, allowing the eternal reality of life with Christ to break into the life of the present. So that's what I'm going to be arguing um, through my talk. Now, while many of Augustine's sermons offer what I would call a sacramental worldview, I'm going to keep us focused. I'm going to use several sermons, but I think it resonates with what I find in a larger body of sermons. So first, I want to go back to that sermon that I quoted already with the definition of sacrament. And I want to set a framework for considering Augustine's understanding of sacrament in the life of the church. And then, the core of our conversation will consider a group of sermons that Augustine preached on the biblical story of Martha and Mary. So that'll be kind of the center. Now, I should note that all the sermons I'm going to be using focus on a Christian community, um, and Augustine's not trying to address questions beyond that community, questions about other religions. And so for that reason, our conversation will be very ecclesially based, because that's what Augustine is doing in the sermons that, that I'm working with. So let's begin thinking about sacramentality and the church. Richard McBrien defines sacramentality as the notion that all reality, both animate and inanimate, is potentially, or in fact, the bearer of God's presence and the instrument of God's saving activity on humanity's behalf. So that's a direct quote from McBrien. This principle of sacramentality finds roots in the doctrine of creation in many ways. It affirms the value of the material world, right, because it says material things, material realities, have the ability to mediate the presence of God. As a friend of mine put it in a recent conversation, if the created world were incapable of mediating the presence of God, then Eucharist wouldn't work. Quotes, wouldn't work. Or at least it would not involve the material elements of bread and wine. So it says a lot about created things to say that bread and wine can actually bear the presence of Christ. Right? So a sacramental worldview gives great honor to the created realm. So sacramentality offers a positive, hopeful view of created, of creation. The created things are not themselves divine, but they have the possibility of mediating the presence of God in God's salvific work. So with this definition in mind, let's return to the sermon mentioned moments ago. Augustine's explanation of sacrament carries a transformative dimension as the invisible reality offers something to the recipient, some spiritual fruit. 
So a second hearing may be in order. Um, so I'll read that quote once more. And I will say that all the quotations that I'm using of Augustine come from the New City Press translation of his works. Okay, so here, Augustine's words again. The reason these things, brothers and sisters, are called sacraments is that in them one thing is seen, another is to be understood. What can be seen has a bodily appearance. I mean, so the bread and wine, we can see physically with our eyes, bread and wine. What is to be understood provides spiritual fruit. That's the end of quote. So in Augustine's view, sacraments bear an unseen reality and give something of spiritual value to those who receive them. Sacraments are more than reminders of an invisible presence. It's not like a memento there, oh, let's not forget that Christ is among us. They're more than a means for observing reality. It's from the outside. The sacrament is an encounter, not a museum exhibit. And the encounter leaves its mark on those involved. So in the case of the Eucharist, the body and, and wine bear the reality of Christ. And yet Augustine says there's something more, something transformative. So continuing with his sermon. So if you want to understand the body of Christ, listen to the apostle, he's referring to St. Paul, telling the faithful, you though are the body of Christ and its members. So if it's you that are placed, that if, if it is you that are the body of Christ and its members, it's the mystery, meaning you, that's been placed on the Lord's table. And what you receive is the mystery, meaning you. It's to what you are that you reply, Amen. And by so replying, you express your assent. What you hear, you see, is the body of Christ. And you answer, Amen. So be a member of the body of Christ in order to make that Amen true. That's the end of the quote. So in this quote, Augustine turns the sacramental reflection right back to the Christians assembled before him. Remember, the newly baptized are there. They want to know about the sacraments that they received the night before. They want to know about baptism. They want to know about Eucharist. So they're right there, and he says, I'm going to tell you about the Eucharist. I'm going to tell you about the bread and wine. This is the body of Christ. And then he turns back to them, and it's like he's saying, guess what? You're also the body of Christ. He goes on to recount the process of catechetical preparation and the sacrament of baptism that they've received, pre presenting this whole process as a kind of spiritual bread making that transformed them collectively into the body of Christ. So the night before when they received baptism, it wasn't just to remind them that Christ has come. It's not just to sort of pledge that they want to be, be um, followers of Christ. For Augustine, when they received baptism, they were truly transformed. They received a new identity, and they bear the identity of Christ. So for Augustine, the church, collectively, all the baptized, bear the identity and reality of Christ in the world. So he has three layers of the body of Christ. Christ's historical body, Right? Christ's own flesh and blood, the Eucharist, and the church itself. So in the Eucharist, he's asking Christians to do more than admire the body of Christ, and even more than receive the body of Christ. By virtue of their baptism, he wants to see that they are the body of Christ, to see themselves on the altar, to see themselves so united with Christ that they themselves are being, being offered every time the Eucharist is celebrated. They become what they receive, and they receive what they've become, the body of Christ. Now during communion, his community would say amen, as uh, many communities would today, to affirm their belief that the consecrated bread is the body of Christ. 
So we ask them to affirm their own identity as a member of Christ's body by being that member. So it's like their whole life becomes the amen. Not just the amen that the body of Christ is present on the altar, but amen that they themselves are now also the body of Christ. For Augustine, their identity as the body of Christ runs deeper than a metaphor. This isn't some image. He speaks here and elsewhere of the church as truly bearing the identity of Christ and taking that identity into life in the world. The church itself then is a visible reality that carries, it's a visible reality that carries an invisible reality, that of Christ. The church not only has sacraments, baptism, Eucharist, etc., the church is sacrament, we could say. So that's step one for a sacramental view of present life. The church as sacrament in the world. Okay, so Augustine would say church is sacrament. What about the life around the church? And so that's going to lead us to Augustine's preaching on Martha and Mary. A little refresher might be in order just to be sure we're all up to speed on the story of Martha and Mary. They're biblical characters in the New Testament. And Martha and Mary are actually sisters. And they share a home in Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem. They appear in scripture two different times. There's an account in John that tells the story of Jesus raising their brother Lazarus. So it's very dramatic. Um, he calls Lazarus to come out from the tomb because Lazarus has already been buried. And Martha and Mary both appear in that story. The story that we're gonna focus on is the story in Luke chapter 10. And it tells of Jesus' visit to their home in Bethany. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. They stop in Bethany for some hospitality and um, spend time with the family there. And in both stories, you see a very comfortable, friendly relationship between Jesus and the family. And I will say in both stories, you find the sisters speaking very frankly to Jesus. In John's story, it's Mary who speaks very frankly to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. We're going to see Martha speaks very frankly in Luke's story. So that's how comfortable they are, that the women have no problem just saying what they're thinking straight to Jesus. So here's how Luke sets the scene. Jesus and his disciples are traveling, they stop in Bethany, and we enter this story while Martha is hard at work. She's the one taking care of all the details. We can imagine her cooking the meal, preparing the table, probably tidying up a bit. She's very busy getting ready to welcome Christ. Meanwhile, once Christ arrives, arrives Mary is sitting there at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus. So we have Martha rushing around, working, Mary sitting quietly, sitting with Jesus. So in the midst of this scene, a tired and frustrated Martha approaches Jesus and says, do you not care that my sister has abandoned me to do all the serving? Tell her to come and help me. Seems like a reasonable request, right? Martha is busy and she needs some help. And if Mary would just get up and come and help, they could get the work done. But here's how Jesus responds. Martha, Martha, he says it twice, once is enough. Martha, Martha. You are busy with many things, but there's only one thing necessary. Mary has chosen the better part, which shall not be taken from her. And these words have echoed through the centuries as Christians try to make sense of this story. So when Augustine steps um, in, when he preaches on Martha and Mary, he's stepping into a tradition of interpretation that's been going on for several hundred years. And there are writers dating back to the end of the second century who use a figurative reading for Martha and Mary, seeing them as images of all sorts of different things. So Augustine is going to approach the story figuratively as well. He puts his own unique Augustinian twist on the whole thing. He takes Martha and Mary as representative figures of aspects of Christian life. 
but here's where he does something a little different. He equates Martha with a life of toil, right? and we can see that, right? She's busy working in the story, and Mary with a life of rest, but he adds an eschatological dimension. He says the two sisters represent two lives, but not in the sense of two options in the present. Rather, the sisters are figures of two lives of the church, with Martha representing the present life in the world and Mary representing rest in the presence of God in eternity. So what he's saying in the reality of the life of the church right now, it's a lot of work of service. It's Martha's life. Mary's life awaits in eternity. That's when there'll be rest in the presence of, of God. And so here's how Augustine explains it, so his words. So you see, beloved, and as far as I can tell, you now understand that in these two women who were both very dear to the Lord, two kinds of life are represented, present life, future life. That's the big distinction for him, present, future. Toilsome and restful, miserable and beatific, temporal and eternal, the end of quote. Augustine characterizes the two lives with language that resonates with his description of action and contemplation elsewhere with action being the toilsome labor of engaged activity and contemplation being restful, beatific vision. But what he does when he speaks of action and contemplation is different from what most people do because he's not saying these are two paths now. He's saying the life right now is a life of action. It's about engaged activity in the world. Contemplation is about eternity. So he presents the sisters using antitheses, seemingly contrasting them, but he is going to show they're not cut off from one another. There's going to be continuity between Martha and Mary. But even though there's continuity, I'm going to talk about them separately so that we can get a sense of what Martha's life involves and what Mary's life involves, and then we'll bring them back together. Martha and Mary appear in um, at least 12 of Augustine's texts. I'm always hesitant to say anything definite about how many times something appears in Augustine's text because there's always one more text um, to read, but seems to appear in 12 of his texts. I want to focus on four texts in particular that have a fuller discussion of the two sisters. And I will say it's difficult to place a date on a lot of the sermons, and so I can't really tell you when he's preaching um, these things. But I will say the thought in these sermons resonate with thought that I find in sermons that people do with some confidence, say, might be 405, 410, 415, maybe even 420. So we're probably talking about the middle portion of his ministry. Okay, so first let's take a look at Martha's life, the life of activity, the life of service in the world. When Augustine speaks about Martha's plea to Jesus, you know, when she says, hey, my, my sister is busy, I, I'm busy, can't you tell my sister to get up and help me? Augustine kind of sets it up as if we're about to see a, a, a court scene. He uses some legal terms, and so we have the sense of Martha bringing a charge against Mary, and then we're waiting to see what Jesus has to say to resolve it all. So he's kind of the judge, but he's also the advocate for Mary. And you'll remember, Jesus had declared Mary's part the better part, right? And so you would think Augustine's going to be going, oh, good for Mary, Martha, you need to get your act together. But Augustine refuses to see that as a rebuke. It's very interesting. He's like, no. How could we say that Jesus rebuked Martha? He says that would miss the point. Because after all, Martha was very busy doing what? She was very busy doing what? She was very busy serving Jesus. Are we going to say that it's bad to be busy about the business of taking care of Jesus? Here's how Augustine puts it. What about it after all? Are we to suppose that Martha was reprimanded for her service, for busying herself with cares of hospitality, for welcoming the Lord himself as a guest? 
How could she possibly be reprimanded for that, seeing that she rejoiced in welcoming such a guest? That's the end of quote. Okay, so we know he's not going to dismiss Martha and say, you should be sitting down and sitting with Jesus either, because he recognizes she is busy about Jesus. Augustine continues to create a vivid scene of what life would look like if all Christians would claim to be free from labor because Jesus said so. So he's kind of bringing it in to his present time, so fifth century, saying, here's what our life would look like if we took that kind of advice. You shouldn't be busy about the things of Jesus. Sit and rest and pray and contemplate. So here's what he says. If that's really the case, let people all give, give up ministering to the needy. Right? Why should we bother with that? Let them all choose the better part, which shall not be taken away from them. Let them devote their time to the word. Let them pant for the sweetness of doctrine. Let them busy themselves with theology, the science of salvation. Don't let them bother at all about what stranger there may be in the neighborhood, who may be in need of bread or who have clothing, who needs to be visited, who needs to be redeemed, who to be buried. Let the works of mercy be laid aside. Everything be concentrated on the one science. If it's the better part, why don't we all grab it, when in this case we have the Lord himself as our attorney? After all, we're not afraid of offending against his justice in this matter, when we're indemnified by his judgment. That's the end of quote. So you can just imagine you know, people thinking, oh, that's right, Mary's resting, and that's the better part. I should rest too. You know, think of all the busy activity that we do. You know? Maybe I don't need to be taking these comprehensive exams, although since if you're studying theology, maybe you do, because maybe that's part of the contemplation of God. But maybe you don't need to go on those service trips, or maybe you don't need to clean up your room or take care of things. You know, forget all that. Just sit and contemplate God. Augustine's like, no way. And you can imagine people being kind of embarrassed when they realize, oh, yeah, here's what life would look like. We'd all close up our business, um, walk away, ignore the poor, because who wants to bother with all that activity? We all just need to sit in God's presence, and we're done. It seems particularly absurd when you think of it in context of Christian life in late antiquity, because he's creating a parody of life without Christian charity, basically. Now, in the early church, one of the real hallmarks of Christianity was charity. That was something that set them apart from their neighbors. Now, certainly, their belief in one God and all of that, but what people would say, we have have quotes of people describing the Christians saying, look at how much they love one another. Okay, so caring for one another within the community, but also people were noticing they're taking care of people outside of their community. Like it's noble to take care of your own, but you're taking care of people that aren't in your family. They're not even in your church community. What kind of people do things like that? What kind of people pick up and go somewhere else to find people in need and take care of them? So there's this kind of selflessness in Christian charity that other people were noticing. So that's how deep this call to service was running in the early church. And so for Christians to think that they could just walk away from service would be incredibly profound in that time period because it's basically walking away from one of the things that's distinctive, one of the things that Christians are known about, known for walking away in many ways from what is their public identity. They're the ones who take care of others. And so Augustine's like, you think that's what Jesus might be asking of you? Think again. So they have to say, well, okay, then how do we make sense of the fact that Martha's part is better, but yet we're not supposed to walk away from service? And I think the works of mercy are a key. 
You remember he mentioned the works of mercy, caring for the stranger, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the lonely, redeeming the imprisoned, burying the dead. All of these, except for burying the dead, that kind of gets added along the way. All of these things about caring for the physical base level needs of others go back to Matthew 25. And that's where there's a scene of final judgment. It's this incredible scene, great imagery. You have this gathering of sheep and goats. That's going to be humanity. Sheep and goats are coming, and um, they're being separated out. And the sheep are the ones that are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. Right? So we want to know, who are the sheep, and how do I get to be one of the sheep? Well, Jesus says the sheep are those who had cared for him. He says, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the list goes on. So he says, all of you who took care of me when I was suffering, welcome into the kingdom. But those sheep in the story say, wait a minute, Jesus. You know, we're happy to come into the kingdom, but we don't remember doing those things. When did I ever see you hungry and feed you? When did I see you thirsty and give you something to drink? I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And then his very famous line comes back. He says, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. A very famous quote. It runs all through um, Christian spirituality. It's the kind of quote that would motivate someone like Dorothy Day, someone like Mother Teresa, to really put themselves aside and identify with the poor. So Matthew is saying to care for others in need is to care for Christ. And Augustine gets very interested in Matthew 25, and it comes into his preaching very often. Um, and he uses it to show that the incarnation has not come to the end. Right? This union of divinity and humanity in Christ is not just about a historical life. When Jesus died and rose, ascended into heaven, that's not the end of incarnation for Augustine. He says Matthew 25 tells us Jesus continues to be identified with humanity, continues to be united to such an extent that when we see someone who is hungry, we should see Christ. And it's not a metaphor for Augustine. Just like that image of the body of Christ is not a metaphor for the church, but an actual identity in Augustine's mind, so too to say, hey, when you're taking care of the poor, when you're taking care of really anyone in need, when you're taking care of physical needs, getting your hands dirty in that messy part of life, for Augustine, you are truly serving Christ. Christ is truly right there in front of you. So if you want to bask in the presence of Christ, go do the works of mercy. Go serve the poor. Go do something for someone else. This is an aside. It makes me think of Teresa of Avila um, when great Carmelite, and when some of her sisters would come and talk about some great vision they had when they were contemplating God, and um, they want to tell Teresa about this experience, she would turn to them and say, you know, that's really nice. Go serve your sister now. And so she didn't want them to get so called up in the mystical experience that they missed the reality of life. And so she would send them from those mystical experiences right back out um, to the service of their sisters. And that would resonate with what Augustine is saying. You want to bask in the presence of Christ, go find the poor. That's where Christ is present in the world. So present in the church, present in the poor. Let's look at another example of how Augustine uses Matthew 25 in relation to the story of Martha and Mary. So this is going to come from another sermon. This one will be Sermon 103, which also is preached directly on this story from Luke. Now, in this sermon, Augustine takes a little different approach to creating admiration for Martha. He suggests that his hearers 
might be envious of Martha. Now think about that. You know, because when you hear this story, you think, oh, well, Martha's in trouble, and I don't want to be the one in trouble. The cousin's like, you're probably envious of Martha. And I must say, envy isn't what I used to feel for Martha. Until I read Augustine, and I was like, no, I might be a little envious of Martha. And actually, he's going to speak of Martha and Mary together. You might be envious of both of them, and here's why. They were able to welcome Jesus into their home. Right? They lived at the same time as Jesus. They had the good fortune to live near Jesus, to meet Jesus, and to be able to have him as a guest. Now, wouldn't that be really great? Wow, if Jesus could be my house guest. I'm not a really big hostess, but I tell you what, I would get my hostess act together if Jesus were coming to visit, right? And so Augustine says, Martha and Mary welcomed Jesus into their home. And he says, not only that, it was an honor, a dignatio. It was an honor that he offered them. Because he, sure, he was hungry, sure, he was tired, but Jesus could have had his needs met in many ways, right, because he's Jesus. And Augustine says, if Jesus just wanted to be fed, he could have called the angels to feed him, right? He didn't have to go to somebody's house and be dependent on a lowly human being to take care of him, but Jesus chose to. That's how deep his identification with humanity would go that he's not even going to use his miraculous powers to take care of his own physical needs. He's going to go trust in someone's hospitality the same way we would need to. And he chose Martha and Mary. And so Augustine says, that's a great honor. It's a gift that they give to Jesus in offering hospitality, but it's a gift that Jesus gives to them to show up at their door, to knock and say, here I am. Let's sit down and eat. And Augustine says, that's why you might be envious. Right? If you think of it that way, hmm, I wish I lived in the first century. I wish I lived in Bethany on the road to Jerusalem, because then I could do that too. But woe is me, right? For Augustine's community, oh, we live in the fifth century. We live in North Africa. We don't have this opportunity. For us, we live in the 21st century. We're even further removed from this story. We're not even on the same side of the world that Jesus lived in. Lived in. Oh, if only we could welcome Jesus. So here's what Augustine says. He's going to turn to Matthew 25, so you can probably guess where he's going, right? Because we've already had this conversation about the works of mercy. He says, and I quote, Don't let any of you say, though, oh, how lucky they were to have the privilege of welcoming Christ into their own home. He says, don't be disappointed. I love it. Don't be disappointed. Hang in there. Don't grumble because you were born at a time when you couldn't see the Lord in the flesh. He hasn't, in fact, deprived you of this privilege and honor. And he quotes Matthew 25. When you did it, he says, to the one of the least of mine, you did, a, you did it unto me. So Augustine is stoking up this desire for Martha's life, as well as Mary's, right? We want to be able to welcome Jesus into our home. But Augustine turns the scripture right back on them, saying, you can serve Christ too. You can serve Christ because any act of charity offered to someone in need is offered to Christ. So, don't sit there complaining and grumbling. You want to serve Christ? You can imagine Augustine saying, there's probably someone sitting right on the street, right outside of, of the basilica there. You can imagine Augustine saying, step right outside. Um, with some of the Cappadocian fathers lived in a different region. In Asia Minor, you will see that in some of their preaching on the poor. They're like, they'll, they'll describe the poor who are sitting right in front of the church um, and say, you know, Jesus is sitting right outside the door here. 
you know, so go out and serve. I don't think that we feel that quite as much, most of us, if we live, um, certainly not if we live in suburbs, but even if we live in certain urban areas, we don't necessarily feel that. Um, if you're in a kind of a downtown church in certain areas, like I used to be in a cathedral parish in downtown Louisville, and there the homeless would gather um, on the steps of the church, and you would walk right past on your way to Mass, you know, and they're asking for food, and you're like, what's my responsibility here? Someone's asking for food, I'm going in for spiritual food, and having to make those kinds of decisions. And you certainly see it even more in developing countries like Haiti or Calcutta, literally, think the poor Christ sitting right at your door. We get a little insulated um, living along the main line. We don't see that quite. The reality's not there in front of our face quite as much. But Augustine is saying, you can serve Christ, have at it. Uh, these acts of charity are offered to Christ. And so for Augustine, that's a very real presence of Christ in the world. I would say these works of mercy have value because creation has value because of the incarnation. We want to turn back to Sermon 104. There Augustine says that God made all of creation and it's very good. And then he goes on to explain why in this very good creation service would even need be needed, right? Because it's such a good world and why, why do we even need to serve, to serve? There shouldn't be any needs. And he says service, ministerium, is needed by those who wish to restore their tissues. So he's saying it's a reality of being material, right? Bodies break down, they need to be restored. That's what service is. So he goes on, why is this? He says, because people get hungry, they get thirsty. Distress calls for compassion. So that's the end of the quote. So you have this sense that creation is just crying out. Because we're material, we have needs, and someone needs to help us. We all have needs, right? Some more um, serious than others, but all of us at least need help getting some food, right? getting some water every now and then, getting some rest, all sorts of things. We all have needs. For Augustine, this isn't a lower calling to take care of others. He says this service is the calling of the Christian in the present life because it's living fully in the created realm. Needs result from being creatures, and thus service is a needed reality in this life. So to do the works of mercy would be to embrace the goodness of being a creature rather than fleeing one's own creatureliness, a flight that would be futile anyway, right? Because we can't really stop being a creature. It's part of our essence. But Augustine's words hardly seem like resignation, right? He's not saying, oh, well, you know, suffering is just a part of life and we just have to deal with it. I mean, if you think of what he's speaking of Martha's work, he's praising this opportunity to care for the physical needs of others. Because in the needs of frail humanity, one comes to recognize Christ in the world. So for him, it's not like, well, we, we don't have a choice, so just get out there and do it. He's like, what an honor we have. It's partly a reality of being creatures, also an extension of the incarnation. And so for him, recognizing Christ in the face of another, particularly suffering humanity, is to affirm that Christ has fully united with creation. And dare I say, I'm going to take a, a bold step and say, it sounds as if the works of mercy um, are an affirmation of the creed with one's very life. Right? People would recite the creed believe in Jesus, incarnation, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like the works of mercy would be an act of faith, an act of affirmation, of belief, affirming the creed with one's very actions and life. Makes me think of Augustine's comment earlier um, that we had seen, where he tells these newly baptized, essentially, make your life an amen. 
to be in the body of Christ, right? And so the works of mercy, caring for people in need, whether it be caring for a family member or caring for a stranger, um, caring for someone who just needs a warm meal to someone who has extremely serious physical needs, any of that would be an amen to being the body of Christ. Thus, Augustine orients our thinking about Martha's work um, to see Martha as having this encounter with Christ, and it's an encounter that extends and continues in present life. And so any opportunity to serve would be a moment of encounter with Christ in present life. Now, we've had all this high praise of Martha. We do have to have a little, before we go too far away with Martha, we need to come down a little bit to reality. Her life has limits. And those limits point to the distinction between her life and Mary's. The works of mercy are grounded in material realm, and so for that reason, they'll come to an end. So that's why Mary's part is better, it won't be taken away, it's because it relates to eternal things. Martha's part is very good, but it does relate to material things. That realm will eventually pass away. So here's what Augustine says. You break your bread to the hungry because you found him, Christ, hungry. Abolish hunger, whom will you break your bread to? Abolish traveling, to whom will you offer hospitality? He goes on, basically going through all the works of mercy. Once this material realm passes away, there won't be needs, and the works of mercy will pass away. There won't be a need to serve. That's when we'll transition into Mary's life. So the works of mercy will come to an end, and with them the end of Martha's service. So I'll have to give some thought then to Mary's life the better part that will not be taken away from her and think, what does that have to say about Martha's life? How will that give meaning to the present? So a few thoughts about Mary's life. Contemplation breaking into the present. In some ways, it's more difficult to talk about Mary's life. Think about it. She's a character in the biblical narrative, and so we speak of her as a historical figure, but Augustine's saying she's a figure that represents an eternal reality. So we're going to find him going back and forth between speaking of Mary in the present reality and speaking of Mary in the future. So we'll feel pulled between um, the present and future. Another reason it's difficult to describe and explain her part is because it's a life that transcends the present, the, transcends the material realm, yet any words and images that we have relate to this material realm. So the way Augustine deals with this dilemma on speaking of Mary is to take imagery from the biblical story and project it wide into eternity. In particular, he draws from the language of eating and feasting. And here's how he contrasts Martha and Mary in terms of meals with Jesus. This is from Sermon 104. Martha was absorbed in the matter of how to feed the Lord. Mary was absorbed in the matter of how to be fed by the Lord. Martha was preparing a banquet for the Lord. Mary was already reveling in the banquet of the Lord. That's the end of quote. So in a few short lines, Augustine has Jesus going from being guest to host. And Mary's the fortunate one who dines at his table. But Jesus also plays another role in this banquet. Because Augustine elsewhere describes Jesus as the host and the meal. Jesus himself is the food. This shows up particularly in Sermon 179. And this is preached on the epistle of James, but Augustine brings Martha and Mary into the conversation. He asks what Mary was eating and drinking when served by the Lord. And he takes his time building up to the answer. Um, and he, he's going on and on. And he keeps saying, what is she eating? What is she eating? And he says, I'm lingering on the point because I'm enjoying it too. You can tell he's really enjoying sort of building suspense as everyone's waiting 
what's Mary eating in this eternal banquet? And here's what he says. I make bold to say that she was eating the one she was listening to. He says she's eating Christ. I mean, if she was eating truth, didn't Jesus himself say, I am the truth? And what more yet can I say? He was being eaten because he was bread. I, he said, am the bread who came down from heaven. This is the bread which nourishes and never diminishes. That's the end of the quote. So he takes this image where Jesus refers to himself as bread from heaven and says, that's what Mary's eating. So Jesus is the host, but also serving himself. This is bread that will never end. And you may have picked up this Eucharistic image. So suddenly we're right back to sacrament, right? Because talking about feeding on the body of Christ. So Mary feeds on the body of Christ. And we've already heard Augustine telling his community, you feed on the body of Christ every time you feed on the Eucharist. And so the Eucharist now has one more layer of meaning. Augustine's framework, um, it brings a taste of heaven into the present. This present life may be focused on meeting needs, but Mary's part isn't completely detached from this reality. Um, so we're getting, are getting hints of the third step um, of the sacramentality of present life. These moments of eternal rest break into the present. So Augustine slips Mary right back into the present and starts talking about the biblical story, because after all, she was a character in that narrative. And he recognizes her presence in the world, but in a limited way. So he's not saying Mary has nothing to do with his life. But her role is limited. She can't receive the full banquet in this lifetime. She only gets crumbs. Of course, crumbs of Jesus wouldn't be such a, you know, not such a bad thing. But he says, she's just getting crumbs. But he says, you see, the Lord was giving her then as much as she was able to take. But the whole amount, such as he was going to give at his table of the future, not even the disciples, not even the very apostles were able to take in at the time when he said to them, I still have many things to say to you, but you're unable to hear them now. So Mary's not banished to eternity. Her life begins in the present with traces of eternity breaking into the life in the world as much as Mary or as much as humanity can handle now. So in many ways, Mary is a sign. The fullness of her life um, doesn't take place in in the present, but she's like an eschatological sign of hope in the present reality. Not only is there more to this life and that Christ is present all around us, that Christ is present in the church, there's more to this life in the sense that there's something beyond this life. And we're oriented toward that. And Mary is in our presence to keep the sacramental vision um, in mind, to help us have a taste of eternity, even while we're anticipating that in hope. So Mary's not independent from Martha, and Martha's not disconnected from Mary, because Augustine also says Martha's life leads to Mary. So Mary breaks into present life present life leads to Martha, it leads to Mary, excuse me. So these works of mercy aren't just exercises to pass the time until we get to this great feast in heaven. For the works of mercy, the life of Martha would lead one deeper into the present of the incarnate Christ, in the presence of the incarnate Christ, and closer to final rest. And so Augustine in several sermons will say, Martha will pass along from this life and she will be at that banquet with, with Mary. And so Martha's life isn't really optional for him. It's part of the journey, part of the way to that final feast. And he goes on to talk about what places where that um, taste of eternity breaks in. You can already guess liturgy, sacraments would be part of it, the Eucharist. Uh, but he also he says anytime, he's, 
anytime you leave um, some of your work behind and take time for quiet, take time for prayer. He says, like what you're doing right now, you're sitting here listening to me preach and I'm attempting to give you spiritual food. This is sacrament, this is contemplation, this is Mary's life right here in the present realm. And so Mary's life points to sacramental moments such as liturgy, retreat, and prayer shows that the whole liturgical rhythm of the life of the church can help to mediate Christ's nourishing presence in the midst of Martha's life. But Martha's life does more than get Christians through Mary. Mary's life does more than get Christians through Martha's life. So it's not like, well, I get a taste of Mary to keep me going. She's orienting Martha's um, life. There's a scholar, Anne-Marie Labenardier, who has emphasized Augustine's use of verbs that really pick up on this sense of, of Martha's life could be distended, could be splattered all over the place, stretched every which way, even though she has a goal ahead of her. And in many ways, Mary's life helps to extend Martha forward, to extend her service, to extend her work to the one thing that matters, to orient her life towards the one thing that will last, orient her to Christ, so that Mary's life becomes a kind of sign that helps to shape Martha's life. And so Mary's life is a taste of what's to come, but it all, Mary's life is a taste of what's to come, but it also orients present life toward Christ. And so in considering the present life, particularly life of Christians, thinking in the context of Augustine, to whom he was preaching, I've mentioned three sacramental aspects in present life. Certainly the identity and life of the church itself. Right? You are the body of Christ. Go be the body of Christ. Acts of service, whether that be sort of daily chores or um, serving people in abject poverty. All of those would be moments of encounter with Christ and then moments of liturgy and prayer. So each aspect mediates the presence of Christ in a particular way while offering nourishment and orientation that deepens one life in Christ. So Augustine's view of the present life radiates with the presence of Christ, whose incarnation extends into the present. It's not to say that everything that happens is a sacrament. Augustine himself clarifies. He says, no, we're not talking about just anything. Right? He says, when I speak of Martha and Mary, I'm talking about people who lived a good life. Like, we're not talking about criminal behavior here. So not just anything can be called a sacrament. But it would seem to me that in Augustine's view, every moment has a sacramental potential when oriented toward Christ, to be an encounter with Christ, whether it be within the inner life of the church or its outward engagement with the world. Hope fills this worldview of Augustine. It's also a bit revolutionary, right? because I think sometimes we kind of take it for granted. We're like, yeah, yeah, go be nice to people. How many times do we need to hear that? But I think he's doing something very revolutionary, especially in his context, because he's offering great affirmation of daily tasks and chores that we have to do, including domestic tasks, including dirty work, you know, whether it's changing a baby's diaper, you know, it's not the cleanest, most pleasant thing, but we do that out of love, right? Um, if you have a child to care for, um, caring for someone um, severely disabled might be sort of off-putting at first, but then you find love to be able to cross that boundary. So whether we're talking about the things that would be the most challenging or just the ordinary things like making a meal for someone, Augustine is bringing all of those um, into really a sacramental realm. They all have the potential to mediate the presence of Christ. He was in a culture 
and it's probably not that different from our culture today, except we do um, now highlight service because it's you know a good way to um, get a job to have service on your CV and all that kind of stuff. But in Augustine's day, action, to use philosophical terms, action, um, in one sense was kind of downgraded in relation to contemplation. Engaged activity in the world, especially in public life, is a good thing, but contemplation is better. And so the leisured life of study would be preferred, and obviously only elite people could have that. Augustine really opens up um, the life of virtue, um, the life of the church, sacramental life to anyone. It's kind of an egalitarian impetus here, an impulse here. But let's think about it. Whether um, you're a domestic servant, whether you're um, a woman who's not allowed to have a public role, you know, fifth century, whether you are a civic leader, whether you're a great scholar, whether you're illiterate, anyone can be brought in to this Christian life that Augustine's describing. Because anyone can be called to take care of another person, to take care of the needs of others, to enter into the liturgical life of the church. And so Augustine's thought is revolutionary in part because it's egalitarian. It's also a bit, um, well, so it's also a bit revolutionary because the relationships among Christians would be part and parcel of this encounter with Christ in the world. Because notice how he keeps talking about the church. He's talking about collectively we're doing these things. He's not talking about individuals going off on some path trying to find themselves. He's talking about church as community being in this journey of Martha's life at the moment in anticipation of Mary's life. And so suddenly we don't have to go solo because a community is living this life together. And so those are a couple of things that I think are particularly um, poignant in Augustine's, um, in Augustine's view. And there's something else that I think is very important to notice. I've mentioned that it's hopeful. And there's been a lot of ink spilled in recent decades tracing a pessimistic strain through Augustine's theology. And some of it is attributed to his realization after he was baptized, it's recognition that the hope that he once had for this life of vision in this world would never be fulfilled because he comes to realize vision won't take place until eternity. In Augustine's preaching on Martha and Mary, he's certainly saying the life of Mary awaits in eternity. He hardly sounds pessimistic. He speaks of the fullness of life in the present that bears the possibility of encounter with Christ even in the lowliest aspects of life. His sacramental view of life means life is lived in hope in the here and now in anticipation of the fullness of life to come. And I think that's important to notice. Um, it's not resignation like, oh gee, we don't have a choice, we're trapped in this world. He's celebrating the fact that service is a possibility in the world today and connecting it to the final goal of life in eternity. And so this hopeful spirit radiates, I think, through all of his preaching on Martha and Mary I think particularly in Sermon 255, I'm going to end with Sermon 255, is preached during the Easter season, so I'm jumping ahead a little bit from where we are um, at the moment. It's not on a biblical passage, but it's on a word. But he's going to bring Martha and Mary in, even though it's on a word. And it's a word from which the community fasted during Lent, as some of you may be doing since we're in the season of Lent right now. So they had fasted from this word during Lent, and then they proclaim it boldly all throughout the Easter season. Since we're not in a liturgical setting, I'm going to say the word out loud, even though it is Lent. 
He preaches on the word Alleluia. That is his text for his sermon, for Sermon 255. And here's what he has to say about Alleluia. He says, at present, Alleluia is for us a traveler's song. But by a toilsome road, that sounds like Martha, by a toilsome road, we're wending our way to home and rest, where all our busy activities over and done with, the only thing that will remain will be Alleluia. I think that's pretty nice. Alleluia awaits, but Alleluia is now. And the journey, the work of now, is undertaken with the song of Alleluia on our, on our lips. The eternal words of praise fill Martha's life of toil with joy as she follows the journey in a spirit of hope and delight. I mentioned delight sounds very Augustinian, so that seems like a good place to end our, my comments on um, Augustine's preaching on present life. I certainly am open to questions and comments from you as well, but I want to thank you for your attention, for listening, following along um, with Augustine and me as we think about Martha and Mary. So. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you. The, um, the sacramental sense of, of the world in which we live is always a bit of a mystery, even for Augustine, and thank you for opening a piece of that mystery. Are there questions that people would like to ask Kimberly? Mm -hmm. Peter. Thank, thank you very much for that lecture. Um, folks today are very busy, and I, I think it's fair to say that I mean, it might, it, might, it might seem that we don't have to hear that it's all right to think about the present life because we, we're doing it a lot already. Um, and yet, it doesn't seem that we're necessarily thinking about it the way that, that Augustine thinks about it. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could start speaking to that directly. Um, what, uh, what, what do we need to think about thinking about Mary with that in well, I think that's a good question because that's one of the things that makes me a little nervous about putting Augustine's preaching out there because my fear is it's going to seem to say, hey, the fact that we are pulled all different directions and we're very busy, you know, we're kind of crazy Americans, right? You know, I, I can imagine, your, you know, what your schedule might look like. And here we've got Augustine saying, well, what do you expect, right? That's what this life is about. But I, that's where I think um, some attention to the difference between being distended and extended would be important. Because Augustine, and I, I only made a mention of that, but there are a number of places where those words come up um, in, in his sermons. And he can describe you being busy with many things in a sense where distended, you would be stretched out, right? And you, can, you might feel that way sometimes. You know, you've got somebody pulling on one arm this way, pulling on one arm that way, maybe a leg. You know, you're thinking, I'm not even sure I can balance, right? When's it all going to crash? And I think that's kind of the busyness that a lot of us live. Um, especially in this culture. And I don't think Augustine is trying to say, see how much further you can stretch, see if you can take that one leg up and, and pull that out as well. And that's where I think that image of, of Mary is helpful because it's not just doing anything is good. The busier you are, the better Christian you are. It's all about orientation to Christ, right? And that's where it's not about distended, being distended, it's about being extended, right? And so there's gonna be some busyness, right? I mean, we can't all just sit around with our feet propped up. I, feel a little guilty speaking about this right now because I have the luxury, you know, of a sabbatical. And so some days I do have my feet propped up as I'm reading, thinking, oh, the people down the hall from me are busy grading papers, and I'm not doing that, and I'm not going to say anything, keep my door closed so they don't see how relaxed I am, right? But that's not normal life from now until retirement, right? I've got the better part for the moment, but I'm going right back, right, to the teaching and committee assignments and all of that. And so it seems to me that Augustine is trying to give some orientation, not that 
wearing yourself out is a good thing, right? Because he also has talked about the reality of the needs of the body, and that might be an important thing as well, because I think sometimes we forget we have bodies. And I had a friend who um, teaches elsewhere, and she, she wrote me as she was going on spring break, and she was like, I think this is the most exhausted I've ever been. She said, and I can't figure out why, and I'm like, I can tell you why, because she would email me, you know, every week or two, telling me how she's doing it, and I said, let's list off all the things you've done, and, and she knows that, I mean, she was being quite a little bit exaggerating, but I don't know why I'm so tired, and I think our bodies are telling us that's not good, right, that's that need of the body that Augustine's talking about, and so in one sense, some of us might need, Augustine's saying, self-care might be part of a work of mercy, right? Because sometimes it might be more focused on taking care of another and turning it back. But I do think the orientation of that busyness is part of it. Is it oriented to good? For one thing, it can't be criminal activity, right? That's totally off, off the, the board when we're talking about Martha and Mary. But also those moments of Mary breaking in, right? Because Augustine says, guess what? You've closed up your shops. You've come here into the church. You're standing there quietly, um, in prayer, being fed the words of the scripture, right? You need that nourishment in your life, right? And that's a good thing. You don't have to say, well, I can't do this because I should be serving the poor, right? Going into the church or wherever, you know, your quiet might be, having those moments of quiet are part of what gives us the nourishment then to continue on with the busy activity, probably physically just to stop, but then also if you're thinking sacramentally to be receiving the body of Christ, be receiving scripture, the word, all those things are all spiritually nourishing and orienting all of that activity toward Christ in one way or another. And I think that's really a key, thinking in terms of distended versus extended, you know, and if you're, if you think about a runner, which that, that, the emphasis on extended it comes from Paul's epistles where he uses you know, athletic kind of imagery about racing, running toward a goal. You know, and you think about if you're a runner and you've got, you see where the finish line is and you stretch out and you know, sometimes if it's close and you see it comes down to the wire and you have like one person who sort of sticks his head out and he's the one that like crosses the line, even though his feet might not be um, that different from where everybody else is, but he stretches out and so he's able to cross the line. You can imagine it kind of like that. And in many ways, Mary's life or really the incarnation, is shaping um, all of this so that life is extended focus, so that all that busy energy and activity is focused toward the goal, which in Augustine's case would be this goal, this contemplation with Christ, being with Christ. And so it gives meaning to the busy activity, but it also gives shape so that it's pulling you forward rather than, you know, pulling you over, hobbling you, and getting you off of the course. So I don't know if that gets at it, but yeah, but that is, that's my big fear, because I'm like, the last thing we need is someone saying, go out and do even more things, right? But here it's about orienting those busy things that we're doing to a warrant goal. I know you know that we have a colleague who lives not far from here who has written a whole book about things are not capable of carrying, as it were, the presence of mm, Christ. Right. That the best they are as reminders. Um, so if you had to write a review of that book, how would you begin to use what you've told us tonight as a way of being, of, of, of saying, what do you mean things can't carry right. Christ? Right, well, and that really gets at the heart of sacramentality. I had written a friend when I started working this, and I said, I, I keep using the term sacramentality. You know, what does it mean? And so she's in sacramental theology. So when she wrote back and um, she gave me the definition from McBrien that really emphasized that 
sacramentality in part is about believing material things can bear um, the presence of God, which I can't find the quote right now. But, um, and so in some ways it has to get back to doctrine of creation, doctrine of incarnation, right? Because Augustine is affirming the goodness of creation. Now, I haven't put him in these sermons in conversation with other parts of Augustine where he talks about um, fallenness and, and all of that corruptibility. So obviously there are other aspects of Augustine that need to be taken into consideration. But, I mean, he's talking about how good created things are. And he's, I think the incarnation shapes all of his thought on this because if a human body um, of a peasant Palestinian in first century uh, AD can bear the presence of God in the incarnation, right there, things have kind of opened up in a sense that, wait, if we believe in incarnation, then we are saying the material realm can bear the presence of God. And then Augustine, he's doing it biblically because he'll go to things like Matthew 25. Um, and he speaks of this, this as a true reality, not a symbol. You know, I can imagine someone else taking those same passages and seeing them as symbols, but Augustine's making it very clear. Christ is right in front of you when you see someone in need. Christ is right in front of you when you look at the church. And I don't think this is Pollyannish. I mean, the church was in great turmoil during Augustine's time. Um, they're in a schism. They're divided. He's looking at the brokenness of the church community and finding the incarnate Christ there. Uh, his words are pretty profound. And um, it, it, would be it would be difficult for me to imagine an argument that takes all that sacramentality totally out. Um, if someone wants to sort of put some limits on it, you know, we can have that conversation. But his very words are saying, creation is good and creation mediates the presence of Christ, particularly bread and wine, right? For him, you know, we have all these arguments about real presence. He's not using the kind of language that we're using, but he's seeing Christ on the altar. He's seeing us on the altar. So not only can bread and wine bear the reality of Christ, it can bear the reality of us, right? And so Augustine seems very freed from seeing material realm as completely limited. Boundaries, yes, it's gonna to come to an end. Um, things will corrupt and need to be renewed and refreshed. But his own words are very much um, words that see the potential for the presence of Christ in many different ways. And so I, I would be hard-pressed hard um, to find a way to take that completely out of Augustine. And I think the incarnation really keeps coming back to being the key. signs of invisible graces. Um, it seems to me that there are three basic venues for scripture. And you've talked about how Augustus was feeding on scripture. Sacrament, properly so-called, especially the Eucharist, an ethical behavior. And it seems to me you've tried to say, Augustine is saying this mediation, this encounter with God happens in these, in these three spheres. And then the, the added point to make would be that to think that having the mediation in any one or any two spheres is an authentic Christian existence is a mistake. The authentic Christian existence requires that one be open to the mediation in God's word, in worship and in ethics, 
in Matthew 25. And it's this, you, you paint it, you paint it for us from Augustine. So I just want to give you that feedback. Well, that's real helpful to think, yeah. Two of the three, you can't stand alone on two of the three. You really need all three for him. And, I, and for Augustine, anything he says about Christianity really is about sort of getting, up, getting words off of a page, you know, something about scripture, or getting that experience of liturgy, the sacraments, baptism, and Eucharist out into the world. And, it's, well, and I think early Christianity in general, there's a real outward emphasis. I've already mentioned the Cappadocian preaching um, the fourth century, so just a little bit before Augustine, some overlap in, in time. Well, Augustine's uh, contemporary Christus. Yeah, right. It's the same thing. Right. You're adoring Christ on the altar, but you're ignoring him on the doorstep. Right, yeah, and, and, and both Cappadocians and Chrysostom will use very vivid imagery to try to create the sacramental sense, because it could, you know, you could say, well, I, you could walk by and say, well, that reminds me of Christ, but the way they use imagery to make the poor come to life really before us before our very eyes, and to make Christ come before us, shaping a sacramental imagination, um, to use, use that term, and that seems to be driving Augustine and all that he's doing, and that's very helpful to think, yeah, those can't be separated, they all go together, right? and they're all transformative. So. Thank you very much, Kimberly. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.